crazy television. It's all right there. All right there. Look, listen, Neil Brett. Commercials. Not productive anymore. It needs to make things anymore. It's all automated. What are we for then? We're consumers, Jim. Ah, okay, okay. Buy a lot of stuff. You're a good citizen. But if you don't buy a lot of stuff, if you don't, what are you then, I ask you? What? Mentally ill. Back, Jim, back. If you don't buy things, toilet paper, new cars, computerized blenders, electrically operated sexual devices, serial systems with brain-implanted headphones, screwdrivers, miniature-built-in radar devices, voice-activated computers. Take it easy, Jeffrey. Be calm. Right. That's right. You're a very attractive woman. Ah. What even is time? This is episode 12 of the Point 10 podcast. We're revisiting the trippy 1995 movie 12 Monkeys, directed by Terry Gilliam and starring Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, and Brad Pitt, and also featuring Christopher Plummer and a whole host of other very recognizable actors in smaller roles. Returning to the pod to talk about this incredible and incredibly weird movie is Andy Carlson. It is so great to see... You once again, Andy Carlson, welcome back to the Point 10 podcast, this time to talk about 1995's 12 Monkeys. And uh, thank you. Awfully good to be here. Um, And, uh, you know, I'll just uh, put my cards on the table right away and say that in high school, this was maybe my favorite movie. Um, I saw it a bunch of times in the theater loved the shit out of it thought it was such a stylish twisty uh you know mind fuck of a movie and i just thought brad pitt was so hilarious and um you know just the whole it, it just i was swept away with it i i bought the soundtrack yeah the soundtrack is I, I bought amazing this, yeah i remember that, that. Of, okay i didn't buy the soundtrack for tom waits i didn't buy the soundtrack for you know, the awfully good version of um, <clears throat> Santo and Johnny's Sleepwalk. I bought the soundtrack for the accordion music. Hell yes, you did. That is <laughs> iconic. For those of our uh-huh. of our listeners who may not have seen this movie, by the way, let me give you the full synopsis that appears on IMDb's website. Are you ready? Go, man, go. In a future world devastated by disease, a convict is sent back in time to gather information about the man-made virus that wiped out most of the human population on the planet. Period. That's it. That's what the movie is about, everybody. <laughs> That's, thank you, IMDb, for that. I feel like they're skipping over some shit about spirals and senses and all of that stuff. <laughs> just a little more there. Just, just, a, just a little more to be said. So... Do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Because in my memory, I think we might have seen this together, but I don't know if that was your first time. Um, what the hell? I'm going to go ahead and say yes. I don't uh, have like a um, a super clear memory of seeing it, although I'm pretty sure that it would have been at the uh, University Square Four uh, theaters. Yes, uh-huh. we did see it together. Yes, okay. I do. Yeah, I do I'm remember sure that. we did. Yes, of course we did. They had that fucking the video game in the in the lobby that wasn't it wasn't Mortal Kombat. It was the one that came after that, but also wasn't Tekken Two. Can't remember which one it was. The one with like six buttons. God, I wasted a lot of money. Oh, and time oh, um, and it had like uh, was it the kind that had like three different games in it? Um, yes. Uh, Yes. Uh, 
<laughs> resisting the urge to google right now but yeah uh, yeah we could we could skip over that part but university square four you know since raised to the ground shout out to that particular theater mm-hmm. man i remember walking out of that theater i don't even remember what time of year it was and just being and like and like grabbing your shoulders and being like holy <laughs> shit what did we just see oh my god my mind is blown uh-huh. and now like on the rewatch all of that is still there, sort of, except like, you know. We're old. We're old, exactly. <laughs> We've been time traveling, you might say, into the yeah. distant future. A world where everything is blase. <laughs> where all our bodies are soft for some reason. <laughs> some more than others. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. You're still playing like sports and things. Oh, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. So do you remember like uh, your, this is an unusual question and not the usual prompt on this uh, particular podcast. Do you remember like what you came, like what was so mind blowing about the first time you saw that? And does that continue to resonate with you? You know, when you, when you rewatched it, it was the quality of, um, uh, the, the circular quality of the construction of the movie, um, straight, which, formalism. you know, was lifted directly from the source material. Yep. Uh, but, um, just that, uh, that kind of unfolding experience of watching the movie where, you know, even the first time seeing it, I remember, um, pieces falling into place as, as, uh, different visual motifs were repeated as the dream sequence kind of was, uh, you know, revisited with more uh, context to fill in uh, what we were seeing. Um, uh, You know, some of the, some of the audio cues, the soundtrack, um, you know, I was kind of a, a, you know, the hopelessly, hopelessly uh, nerdy romantic uh, as a teen as, you know, who wasn't, but, uh, you know, so the, the doomed romance angle Mm -hmm. I thought was, you know, was very, um, very much grabbed me. Uh, But, but really it was just that sense of um, uh, how kind of in, you know, in my experience at that point, how tightly constructed Gilliam created this time loop, this, this sort of hermetically sealed a chronological environment, you know, where uh, a, a seemingly uh, minor detail viewed earlier in the film would suddenly return to prominence. Um, you know, like there was the photograph of a, you know, a, a porcelain pig's head. Yeah, that, right. Um, mm-hmm. You just sort of see a glimpse of in, you know, the first kind of scene setting, uh, establishing the scientists and. Um, but then, you know, it turns out to be, uh, you know, kind of a landmark that signifies or that kind of, uh, uh perches atop the, the highway of yeah. the, um, uh, the hideout. Yeah. So that was, that was it for me. How about, uh, how about for you? So I like, for me, it was much more straightforward than that. Like the same with the doomed romance and all of that, but like, it was simply the sort of like mind fuckery of time travel and the way that it was dealt with in a, in a way that was, it wasn't like an explicitly philosophical meditation on the meaning of time or anything, but it also wasn't not that. And, and, but it was done in this sort of like realistic style in which there was an 
objective to be accomplished. They spent like what I appreciated about the movie the first time and on the rewatch is that like they made it seem like time travel was a thing that a technology that had been developed, but they didn't go into great detail about like how it would work or what the ramifications would be. It was just that like time travel exists and, and you know, science isn't an exact science and that kind of stuff, which that has continued mm-hmm. to resonate with me um, uh, since. So, and fuck, Bruce Willis does such a great job in this film. Like that was, he, he, as an actor, he took a lot of these kinds of weird roles in the middle, mid nineties. He didn't have to do this. He was a comedic actor Mm -hmm. first and then there was Die Hard. And then all of a sudden he's in like the fifth element and this, and you're like, what the fuck is happening? So like, he really took this sort of like uh, science fiction-y route. Anyway, that's, that those are the things that I that that were memorable to me, and the same that like the the way it all builds to that sort of last scene, uh, uh, in the airport when you're finally we've seen it several times now. The man getting shot in the back, young Cole looking on, and then all of a mm-hmm. sudden we're like, holy shit, he's watching his own death, and you're like, oh my god, that's uh, <laughs> uh. <laughs> that that part does not seem quite as profound sort of now, but like that. That blew my mind uh, mm-hmm. as a kid. You know, and the, I I think also um, that it's sort of I remember it being more you know seeming more open ended. Uh, the con- I remember the conclusion seeming more open ended. Uh, the first you know half dozen times I watched it as a yeah, yeah. as a high schooler, but you know rewatching it now is like that's pretty cut and dried. She definitely says I'm an insurance <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even if she says I'm know, in insurance, we're like, okay. So like mm-hmm. maybe the pandemic just never happens that. Here's another thing. So like there is one big fucking thing that has happened since we saw this movie and then like <laughs> between like the initial and the rewatch, and that's an actual pandemic has happened. If uh-huh. I didn't know anything about so the source material, La Jete, or however you pronounce it, mm-hmm. uh in uh in French, it's not I, I choose not to pronounce French. <laughs> La La Jetty. Uh <laughs> It's it's a philosophical objection. Yeah. I, I just uh, abstain. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> I respect your right <laughs> to never never pronounce French. Um, in that film, it's not a pandemic. It's a nuclear. It's like a, a post apocalyptic nuclear world. And I don't know why uh, Gilliam decided to go with the uh, t- in the other direction. But like, it makes a shitload more sense why they're underground. My first mm-hmm. impression of the of the rewatch is like, wait. So there's a pandemic, a deadly virus, and you all went indoors? Like, that's that's the thing? That was your reaction? You took action? <laughs> I, like, there you are so many things that, some, that like, looked like they were totally plausible in 1995 that now mm-hmm. on – on, after living with uh, the coronavirus since 2020 seem utterly improbable. Like scientists mm-hmm. are in charge for inter- for instance is something like it's like <laughs> like are not have not only like are not only the the best hope for humanity but have also s- somehow seized power if like mm-hmm. they are the political uh, kind of thing and all, like there's other weirdnesses like the 
red-haired, whatever, the lab assistant who lets the virus loose upon the world. So this is a virus that I'm to understand is contagious and virulent enough to to wipe out whatever, 90% of the world's population, but you also have to fly it around the world yourself? Like, that's, like, you have to intentionally drop it off in various airports? So, like, that stuff is uh, a little bit odd. That's That's minor superficial stuff. And, you know, honestly, I read that as sort of, um, you know, this uh, guy who's, you know, taken it upon himself to become the fifth horseman of the yeah. apocalypse mm-hmm. to, you know, he's he's hedging his bets and he's he's absolutely making sure that, you know, I mean, have you ever have you played the game Pandemic? No, <laughs> oh, I mean, man. it's a it, so it's it's one of the, you know, the so right now we're in kind of a, a renaissance of, uh, of board sure. games and mm-hmm. tabletop gaming. And Pandemic is one of the games that, you know, maybe 10, 12 years ago really kind of ushered in that this sort of current wave of, um, you know, really excellent board games that we're were in the middle of. But it's it's a cooperative game in which all the players work together to try and um, uh, quell the outbreak of a deadly virus. And it is fucking hard and you lose all the time. So it's a and, fantasy. And a big part of it. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And it's, you know, and, and like a big part of it is that like, you know, you can't go everywhere at once. You can't, you know, you don't have enough resources to right, address yeah. all of the different uh, points of, uh, of outbreak. So, so I, I did kind of be like, oh yeah, this guy's a real fucker. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, he's really thought it through. Yeah. Yeah. He's, Interesting. You know, he's, he's doing some shit. You're taking it from like the board game perspective. <laughs> I love it. So like but, thinking about the, the combination of these two uh, concerns, sort of um, uh, thinking about like its depiction of a pandemic in our own sort of just continuing to go through a pandemic in real life. Uh, what do you make of the presence? So one of the big deviations from the source material here and obviously when we were teenagers i had no idea what the source material was like up until two hours ago i didn't know what the source material was but like one of the (laughs) one of the major deviations from the source material is that uh is first of all like the the woman that in his past that he establishes a connection with is not just some woman as it was in the source material to whom he has like a purely romantic attachment, but it's his psychiatrist. Like there's there's this whole sort of uh, therapeutic relationship going on, and the 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 other huge deviation is that in the source material, you know, he has to not only go back to into the past, but he also has to travel into the future where more advanced scientists can bestow upon him the technology that will allow him to sort of like regenerate society or whatever, uh, and through a series of hijinks we'll say through various plot devices he ends up uh he ends up on the wrong side of what is in this movie the scientist sort of aside and so like his life is in danger and the people from the future are like well you can take refuge in our time if you'd like and then like this won't be uh an issue and in, instead of taking him up on this offer he decides to go back to be with this woman even though he knows it is probably going to mean his death. Very 1968 France uh, mm-hmm. in terms of like existentialist overtones and like whatever. But like. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll just note that's an awful lot of plot to cram into a 26 minute long 
It's not even a movie. It's it's a collection of a still photos. Of stills. <laughs> it's like he's like, I will see your moving pictures and return you to <laughs> pictures. <laughs> Black and white style. Yeah. And somehow Son of yeah. a bitch, it worked, Frenchie. You got me. That is that is quite a lot of stills. Is it just like is it is it see, you know, I know what the source material is. Have you seen the original movie? Um if you want to so call it I, that. <laughs> uh, yes, I did watch it. Um, so I was enough into 12 Monkeys in high school that I actually rented La Jete from uh, Four Star Video Heaven Hell just off yes. of State Street. Um, and I managed to like resist the siren pull of the quote unquote documentary section <laughs> where, you know, <laughs> they kept all the porno. <laughs> Found, you know, La Jete, which is this... Um, you know, it was 26 minutes and it was frankly not sounds what like I was porn. expecting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, uh, so anyway, I did watch it again. Um, uh, or <laughs> I watched like the first 10 minutes of it, uh, tonight as I was trying to get the kids asleep, uh, just to like refresh my memory of the, like the style and stuff. So I have not seen that movie, but like when I'm reading the description, I'm like it's a lot of stills. And there's also all this plot. The only thing that I could, I'm like, is it like the Ken Burns Civil War documentary? Is that how this basically I'm just a lot of voiceover over still photos? What is it like? My dearest Martha. <laughs> we are down to our last bucket of hardtack. Exactly. So only in French. Right. <laughs> I'm not even yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had the same thought. That's good. I know my limitations, um, but uh, what were we talking about? We were, okay, <laughs> let's get back to like the bring, bring it back the, to the structural <laughs> awesomeness of this movie. One of the things that like I definitely didn't. Uh, there was uh, so much that I fucking didn't notice as a teenager, but like one of those things was like just the parallelism between the two times. I don't know how I could have missed like a structural element that is this obvious about like the board of the psychiatrist that is sort of interviewing him in this mental mm-hmm. hospital that is also sort of a prison and his actual prison, uh, you know, in mm-hmm. in the future with the board of scientists who same white lab coats, different panopticon structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... So I, um, I, I, it popped back into my head that we were, we had, we'd been talking about the pandemic and, um, so actually if, before we get into the structure, if, if it's okay with you, um, I'll back up a second because, uh, I'm recalling that the mid nineties, there was actually, if you'll pardon the expression, an outbreak of, uh, virus themed fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. Michael Crichton's um, outbreak. Oh, the hot the, zone. And then that the hot, became the, the hot movie zone was nonfiction. Outbreak. It was about Ebola. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It wasn't. And they made it into a really, they outbreak. made it into a movie with Dustin Hoffman, yeah. mm-hmm. um, with a great scene of like, you know, the virus spreading in a movie theater, which, yeah, yeah. you know, when I saw it, it was like, Whoa. Yeah. I'm yeah, in a movie yeah exactly. <laughs> but, um, it's, it strikes me that this was, you know, not even a decade after the the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, and so, you know, I I wonder to what extent the the idea of uh, of a viral pandemic was an easy um, 
apocalyptic replacement for uh, for the idea of nuclear holocaust. Yeah, a hundred percent. So, like, I think that 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 is super characteristic of almost it, it. This needs to be a point that we make on literally every episode of this podcast, especially ones <laughs> that involve like science fiction and action and whatever. There's always like whatever else is happening. We're also dealing with a transition out of the Cold War into some new territory or new period of time that we are trying to understand. And so like for like <laughs> the, the end of something, yeah, the, the, the end, <laughs> the of, end of what? <laughs> there's it's like, but like, so like in true lies, you've got crimson jihad and like, like mm-hmm. there's, there's a search for like, well, what's the, the homeland still has to be threatened somehow so that we can like build a movie around saving that. But like, what's the threat going to be? And so, and here we have in the mid nineties, this sort of uh, this kind of devastation, and and it's not just a pandemic; it's a deliberate act of terrorism, which really does right. become the sort of like individual. And like this is a real like monkey wrench gang type approach, where like this one lab technician or one junior scientist in Brad Pitt's dad's lab, no scientist is that fucking famous, like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> or, or has that southern of an accent an amazing uh, amazing i'll just pause christopher plummer christopher plummer incredible so can uh, just like we got to tag that we got to come back to this but this was a stacked cast oh my god it's really quite incredible yeah we will so, come anyway, back to but you so, were saying anyway movies of the 90s uh looking for uh a new kind of thing so it's an act of terrorism in which this junior lab assistant uh, takes a deadly virus out of the lab because he is convinced that the earth cannot sustain, uh, you know, the 5 billion people that uh, live on it now. And like, and he, and, and even more so that the 5 billion people that live on it now do not deserve to live. Yes, exactly. There's a, there's a moral overtone of like, it's not just, Oh, this isn't sustainable. It's like, you know, cause he goes on the spiel, you know, where he's like, the worst dude you've ever met in your oh, you know, exactly. autograph line. And he's like giving her his little soliloquy as, as she's, you know, trying to sign other people's books. He's like, you are the biggest tedious fucking asshole. And the, the minute he leaves just a, a <laughs> note on that, like, you know, I wasn't an academic then, you know, when we saw it the first time, but I am now. And so like it, it was wonderful that that scene sort of wraps up as this like old mustachioed man sidles up and is like, I wonder if you're familiar with my research, a classic, like this is, this is more of a comment than a question kind of thing. It was amazing. That was well done and very accurate as opposed to the psycho who who like comes, who comes directly up and is like, don't you think that this is all just very present. Shouldn't we all just die? And by we, I mean they and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's very like, so like also just a structural note, that's the tightest little exposition of a malevolent intent that there's ever been in a movie. That's all we get from Mm -hmm. him. Like we don't understand that it's him who's going to like, you know, drop this virus until the very end of the movie. And he's just like, but like the minute that becomes clear, we're like, oh shit. We know why this is happening and what his whole political deal is Mm -hmm. uh, and all that. So, like, there's – I just want to say that, like, there's not only, like, there's pandemic as the new sort of nuclear apocalypse, but then there's the bad guy ideology, which is suddenly something like eco-terrorism rather than, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, good old-fashioned communism. Mm -hmm. You know, and eco-terrorism, like, you know, verging into nihilism. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
I mean, this is this is not somebody who's like, we can rebuild from the ashes. He's like, nope, nope, everybody should die. Yeah. Um, what do you think of the the relationship between his ideology, the idea that everybody should die, specifically the thing he says about being like, uh, like the motto of humanity now is just like, let's go shopping and all the things that uh, Brad Pitt's character ends up saying uh, about like the definition of mental illness. Is there like, mm-hmm. that's obviously a duplicated scene. One of them is literally, well, they're both sort of literally, whatever. We don't need to get into the mental illness thing. What do you think of that? Um, you know, it's, um, it's compelling, but I think it's also sort of ultimately, you know, one of it for me, maybe this is, and this is a good way to kind of uh, bring it to bring around to some of the criticisms that I have now watching this as a 43 year old, um, you know, but it's like, God bless him. This is, this movie is just not quite as smart as it think it thinks. It yes. Is. Um, you know, it's, it's fun. It's, you know, got a kind of fun puzzle structure. Um, but I found that, you know, there are several points where, you know, teen me thought, oh, there must be so much yes. more under the surface. And, you know, middle-aged me says, no, that's about it. He's he's making a very facile, on-the-face point about, like, what is really mental illness? Yeah, exactly. Is the real mental illness consumerism? Yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, yeah, that's exactly like, okay. You know, and he, he kind of hedges his bets by putting that sentiment into the mouths of two characters that, you know, we we aren't supposed to take seriously you know one because he's uh, loathsome and the other because he's uh you know uh uh, pretty profoundly uncontrolled mental illness yeah Um, right you know but you also can't shake the sense that like that's where gilliam's sentiments lie that's right you you know you see sort of almost too clever by half trying to um uh, you know trying to make the point but also back away from it you know because he's also somebody who whose livelihood depends on that very consumerist impulse yeah he's selling yeah. something yep exactly that little classic cat 22 for the creator of popular art <laughs> popular <laughs> culture kind of things who also wants to critique uh the very basis of that uh of a, a market for popular culture so like yeah so that's one big criticism of the movie especially i i you know we were talking by text a little bit earlier this evening before doing this episode and i mentioned that i was like it was very good for my initial mind-blownness seeing this movie that i hadn't yet read a lick of foucault because now i'm like (laughs) oh yes okay cool so like you know how does society define its insiders and its outsiders blah 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 biopower whatever so like Mm -hmm. it's it all it all feels very the things that i thought were sort of like mind expanding when i was 16 or 17 are no longer mind expanding is all that i'm trying to say but that's you know partly a uh the result of having had my mind expanded at, at a certain <laughs> point in, in my teenage years in exactly mm-hmm. this way there's like one of the interesting things to come a little bit back now we are developing a circular puzzle-like structure in this podcast episode. 
to come, it was inevitable. <laughs> it was inevitable. <laughs> to come back to the idea of uh, like what was going on in the '90s, etc. Like one of the things that is striking about rewatching these movies in general, and this movie in particular, and thinking about the fact that like we are continue to live through a pandemic now, is that uh, not only did this movie sort of reflect uh, the sort of concerns and anxieties of that era as we were like leaving the cold war and morphing into something new. And it wasn't clear like what the next threat was going to be, but we knew by God that there was going to be one. Um, but also these pop culture pieces themselves help pave the way for the way that we experience actual events that sort of mirror them. There's like, this is both related to the fact that like, here's a pandemic in this movie that like, I don't know that I was thinking of 12 monkeys uh, exactly, but like it, the idea that like the scientists who are in charge are like totalitarian, you know, removers of freedom certainly seems to have played out ideologically in uh, some real life people's uh, mm -hmm. minds. I was just like flying back uh, from Colorado the other day and was watching Independence Day on the plane, which is going to be the subject of a future kind of thing, Ooh. and was suddenly like, and I don't know why this just struck me now, but I was I was thinking about the fact that like that little speech that Bill Pullman gives, like, is mirrored in like the way that it was photographed in the sort of like dress that was being worn by like George W. Bush standing on the uh, mm -hmm. on the rubble of the World Trade Center after nine eleven. So like the way it's. This is like a mutual reinforcement loop or like popular culture and like political reality determine one another in, in mm -hmm. this really sort of interesting way. Yeah. And I, um, <clears throat> you know, one of for me, one of the lessons of the pandemic um, reinforcing one of, you know, the lessons of the Trump years was, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a piercing of the my own bubble of naive, naivete about like you know, <laughs> things like the innate goodness of humanity and the, you know, the reason, the capacity of people to react reasonably to, uh, to a set of circumstances and thinking like, well, you know, the uh, propaganda can't actually be that powerful. Can it? Um, and we learned we did <laughs> in the parlance of our times we fucked around we found out <laughs> <That's exactly right. laughs> we are continuing to find we out. sure are um, but you know so so i think you know for me you know part of the you know the the fun for me of watching this movie as, as a as a youth was this uh you know that i had an understanding of it that like Oh, people wouldn't really, you know, react that uh, badly. People wouldn't, uh, you know. It's like, no, they would. Some of them would. They absolutely would. Um, you know, and it's, you know, and I, I, I don't know if, um, you know, I don't think that, you know, conservative Republicans and these anti-vaxxing grifter types, you know, they certainly weren't like watching Twelve Monkeys and taking notes, but. I think Gilliam absolutely tapped into a piece of the, the, the cultural psyche that, you know, that I wasn't at that time willing to, you know, investigate or look at. There's another, it wasn't something on my radar. Yeah. There's a, there's another part of that, which is like, and this is a real, like, I think about this with sort of like uh zombie, like the walking dead, for instance, uh, mm. virtually any sort of post-apocalyptic 
uh, scenario story. Here we have a pandemic. There we have zombies. Uh, you might have like something like Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Uh, the the really the terrifying thing for me about parsing any of those stories is that it's not that it's it's not for me something like we have failed to react reasonably some event has happened and like all of a sudden people became sort of opportunistic or collectively lost their minds it's that you know whatever sort of like uh polite glaze there is over everyday ordinary life is just stripped away and this is just what it has always been nothing is different Mm -hmm. it is like how you would react to the zombie apocalypse is also just who you are is the is Mm -hmm. the problem uh and so like sort of the go ahead it's the it's the robert e howard conan the barbarian hypothesis or yeah uh, yeah worldview that you know that the the truth of humanity is barbarism and cities and civilization are the thin scrim that we drape over that to pretend ourselves that we're otherwise. I'm not even sure that it's it's uh, it's quite that pessimistic. That is, I'm not sure I would go all in on being like humanity is shit, basically, and and like we mask that in various ways. It's it's simply that like humanity is always a mixed bag, and like that never. Uh, that never comes to the surface quite as clearly as when it would really be helpful if society was not a mixed bag <laughs> just for like fucking two weeks in March of you know uh, 2020. If we could just pull it together for fucking 14 days. Man. <laughs> That's all. Uh, can't argue with that. <laughs> so, yeah. So like that's, for me also like looking at this movie i mean it, there was a, there's a real sort of energy to this movie especially when you know as as he spends most of uh most of the movie in 1996 with madeline stowe uh there's there's a lot of sort of like oh my god everybody is just sheeple walking around like totally oblivious to the the harm that they're doing and also to what's coming and they won't listen to the person who's telling them the uh, the like visibly crazy person that like they won't listen to reason blah 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 we we know because of dramatic irony that he's telling the truth uh and that part of it sort of fell away for me this time uh Mm -hmm. for sure i was just like i didn't have that sense uh at all that is the sense as an audience member of sort of like superiority to people who are just trying to who are being like who the fuck is this guy and that to me that is the genuinely interesting thing about about this movie that I found myself um, appreciating more than any of the kind of structural trickery and the uh, you know the sort of nods at depth and profundity, um, it, you know. And I think it's also interesting because of who Terry Gilliam is as a person and how he has operated as a director, and you know some of the. Uh, uh, you know, complaints and revelations and, um, uh, you know, that he's been uncovered as being a pretty catastrophically abusive prick as a director and as a human. Um, but when you watch this movie, you realize that he has no, he does not have contempt for any one of anybody that appears on screen. Yeah. Every single, every single character that appears on screen, every single location, uh, 
Every single character is is similar to to location in that it's all fully inhabited. It's all they're all fully realized. Um, the example that pops to mind is you know right at the end in the climactic airport uh, scene when Madeline Stowe gets in the shouting match with the security guard as they're kind of jammed in the security entrance, and you know that could be like a great opportunity for like oh look at yeah look at these stupid sheeple they you know yeah, they can't yeah. get it together to let the thing happen but you can absolutely yes. take that security guard's point of being like, yeah, I'm getting yelled at by this abrasive white lady. Of course I'm not going to let her through. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. You know, it looks like, yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, in the, I think the closest things that we get to caricature are the, um, you know, the activist types. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but even those are like, you know, it's like you can kind of imagine who they are that brought them to this place and what, what their motivations have been and like there's not um you know there's <clears throat> and, and and for me that that kind of links up with a lot of movies of t- a lot of fiction about time travel ends up being um fatalistic or yes, right. you know or hopeless you know and what's interesting to me is that even though this is a movie about time travel and about like you know, the sort of repeating the mistakes of the past and being caught in these sort of cycles, you know, I I think that's the reason that this motif of the, of the spiral is significant Mm -hmm. because at no point is this a movie that is hopeless. Yeah. There's no, there's no despair, Mm -hmm. even like the God awful living conditions that he, that Cole endures in the future. The, you know, the, um, just the terrible experiences he has. There's not, um, you know his motor keeps running. Yeah. There's no, um, uh, there's no, uh, there's no sense that like there's nothing that we can do. So we got to stop trying it. it there is a, a driving engine of, of hopefulness that kind of inv- invests the characters with dignity and propels the plot forward and compels you to keep uh, in c- to stay connected to it. Yeah. There's there's a sense of like at the beginning of the film Cole just has he has his orders he keeps repeating phrases about how he was chosen for his strong mind he's very good at observing mm-hmm. blah 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 that turns out to be a little tidbit from the uh source material as well uh but he's very sort of he's like I've got this mission I have to do these three things I'm supposed to sort of look for this blah 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 and he becomes he the character becomes more of a full person not just in like the in 1990 or 1996, but also in uh, the future in his conversations uh, with the scientists as well. So like the spiraling goes is not just taking place at one point in the in time, but is also carrying over across time jumps as well. That's just I that's just an observation about like Cole's character that I hadn't realized before right then. I have two two big notes. We still have to talk about the stacked cast. I'm curious, though, as as someone who is very familiar with uh, Christian scripture, literature, iconography, is that there's so much of it in this movie, and I know that it's important to Terry Gilliam and his filmmaking in general. Is it doing any actual work here? It is definitely doing work, as we talked about earlier, like 
in a text conversation in the Fisher King. Mm-hmm. Is there is it anything other than basic sort of a goth a gothic aesthetic? I think I lean more towards uh, towards the aesthetic. Uh, uh, in, is is I just in my experience of the movie, um, you know, just because of that quality of uh, you know of not. You know, there's not a lot of depth um, that I experienced, and you know, and maybe a, you know, this may be my uh, someone with with better. Uh, well, I, I don't know what someone better would do. All I know is that I I experienced you know some of these um, you know there's sort of this Pieta moment where um, Madeline Stoll is kind of cradling uh, mm, yes. uh, Bruce Willis's head as. Um, you know, and, and sort of gazing down on, uh, at him in this very familiar posture from from European art history, um, the po- the pose after he's shot in the with his arms splayed yep, yep. is you know explicitly a crucifixion pose, as is the um, the then the scene at the end. It's like you know the, this they went right from the crucifixion to the uh, I think it's the deposition where they take the body down from the cross, mm-hmm. which is another you know these are all. Um, genre scenes yes, that right. are you know painted and sculpted over and over and over again because they were so useful in um uh you know conveying the messages of of the church um you know it's like you don't you know the the uh, the priest is going to be sp- uh, speaking in latin and it's you know mm-hmm. kind of a not likely that a whole lot of the uh, the congregation is going to be following that um but they know the stories mm-hmm. and they know the the images and then they can they can fill in the gaps um yeah i i, I wish i had like a a smarter or a chewier or a way better way to understand it but it you know to me it's just um you know again it's just, just sort of like you know i i almost think it would have been hard for him not to uh borrow or not to lean into right. these tropes because you know they're i mean they're baked into uh, you know, white Western culture yeah. in particular, um, you know, and so it's, I, I don't know that they have much significance beyond just on the face of it mm-hmm. saying, you know, oh, her redeeming love is, uh, you know, is, is uh, a, 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 a guidepost for him or, right, right. you know, his, yeah, right. his sacrificial death will let us, you know, will, will redeem us from this, uh, you know, sinful uh, act of evil. Well, so. on that note, it feels like that explanation right there about like his sacrificial death will redeem us. That's the only explanation that I can think of for why he has to die at all in mm. this movie. After all, what's her face is sitting there in the in the in the plane seat in first class because she's in insurance. Why does she need mm-hmm. to be in? Sh- why, why do they need to send him running through an airport with a gun to try to kill this guy before they get on before he gets on the plane? If they've already got somebody on the plane who's waiting to kill him, like mm-hmm. that part doesn't make any sense. But also, I think we should note just for like a plot point, it's too late. The virus is already out in the airport, so like. Mm-hmm. The fact that she's going to kill him is not actually going to stop the pandemic from happening. The cycle is going to continue where they're going to have to try to figure this out. Although, um, as uh, you know, as, as they've kind of um, I forget what point in the movie he makes it clear, but, you know, his mission is not to stop the pandemic from from beginning. His mission is to collect the a sample of the pure virus. 
um, so that they can study it and then, uh, yes, you know, design a cure, engineer a yeah, which so, also now in our post-pandemic world makes no sense. Like, what good is whatever the alpha variant to us now in terms of curing coronavirus? <laughs> so, like the idea that like yeah. ah, before it mutated, that's when we need to get it. Like when it was still pure, and I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> if you say so, Terry Gilliam. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that that, um, you know, because then there's also, you know, what leads up to him even having the gun is the reappearance of his friend, uh, Jose, Jose yeah. who, you know, and he, and he says, this isn't even about the virus anymore. This is just about getting me back in line. Yeah, 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 so yeah exactly. Then, you know, and, and so I guess this is why the, you know, the kind of the Christology stuff kind of gets muddy for me yeah. is it's like, okay, so is he being sacrificed by the people that he's trying, you know, right, it's, exactly. it's just like it, you know, it, <coughs> it doesn't, it doesn't line up in um, the tidy way that, that we might like. That's right. I mean, I know that like with quite a lot of legwork, you can get like Foucault and Christ together, but like you can basically in, within the space of like a limited movie, you can have one or the other, but not both really is the mm-hmm. is the thing. The only thing that like seems I mean, and again, this struck me as really profound when I was 16 in, in a way that it doesn't anymore. The idea that you might have these sort of street preachers or the, the person that Madeline Stowe's character refers to in the talk that she gives somebody who just like shows up speaking in a totally different language and predicting a, an apocalypse. You're like, oh, OK, these are like these were it's not that divinity exists it's that like we invented time travel at some point and you're like ooh, ooh, maybe that's all there is to it <laughs> something i was mm-hmm. like oh yeah so you know and that, go ahead oh sorry yeah. you know and, and i mean again it's um it sounds you know i, I don't it sounds uh you know awfully critical but you know, at the same time, I think it's like, well, you know, this is a Terry Gilliam movie. It's not, um, you know, it's kind of his thing to like have this. Uh, he's a very stylistic director. Mm-hmm. He's very, he's got, you know, certain stylistic tics and yep. you know, tropes and things that he returns to. Like, um, I think I, in our text, I mentioned that I was really struck by his use of, uh, of a sense of scale. Yeah. Right. You know, of, of dwarfing human figures in these sort mm-hmm. of outsized mechanical environments yep. or, you know, or even, um, you know, there's a scene where, um, uh, where, where Stowe and Willis are, you know, running by the pillar, the graffiti covered pillars of some former church or, you know, a temple, uh, type structure, um, the sort of, you know, a Greek, uh, a neo, Greek um, revival building. Um, can't remember my architecture words right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Ionian and, uh, pillars, but, what have you. You know, and then he's also got this like, you know, I don't, I, I, I can't think of a movie that I've seen maybe recently or ever that works so hard at um, reminding you of your sense of smell. Yeah, um, that's a great point. You know, like he's he's really interested in the senses. He's really interested in touch, like touch especially. Like his, his you know, this movie, God, it's just so tactile. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's all these scenes of like people like touching bald heads. Yes, and, yes. Um, you know, and, and you, the, the sort of transparent, you know, rubberized uh, suits that people wear. You yeah. Know, like like you, you 
you feel physically uh, drawn into the film just by imagining, you know, this sensory experience of, you know, zipping up this bizarre, clear plastic, you know, surface land suit that he puts on right at the very beginning. Um, he keeps talking about like, oh, the air smells so good. Yes, he right. smells her hair. Your, yeah. your hair smells amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she flinches away from the from the breath of the and from the body odor of the the homeless yeah. person that that accosts them on the street. You know, I mean, it's there's this like constant, um, you know, sensory uh, overload. You know, and the final shot of the movie is this like uncomfortably long. Uh, tight shot of this young boy's unblinking eyes as he's watching a plane fly above um you know there's so all that is to say is that like you know this kind of fits with gilliam's whole thing of you know he's really you know he's as interested in constructing an environment as he is in like imbuing it with um uh you know thematic depth sure and boy in in terms of his style or the things that comes back uh in this movie and in most of his movies, uh, homelessness exists and he is intent on reminding us of that fact that like urban spaces are, are places where, uh, you know, uh, cheeseburger wrappers and tarps and whatever collect in various places. He loves a good sort of rundown interior shot of a, preferably like the more cavernous, the better uh, a department store with, you know, that is eight stories to the ceiling and abandoned theater, all these like mm-hmm. random sort of uh, uh, set pieces. The, like m- the, the striking thing about the, <laughs> the very heavy handed in retrospect image from uh, <laughs> Fisher King as, as we cut from like Jack Lucas, the, the shock jock who's on top of the world to Jack Lucas, the alcoholic is literally like, a pan down the face of the like very shiny building in which he used to live to like the shitty porn video store that is like on the first floor where he now sort of works. And, but like paying attention to exteriors like that too. And that's before we Mm -hmm. even get into the idea that like, well, we're just going to turn, take a camera and we're going to turn it, you know, on a 45 degree angle (laughs) and then like have some establishing shots like that. Just so you get the impression that things are a little skewed or whatever. <laughs> Here's the thing. I'm going to transition to talking about the cast for a second. Yeah, so do it. My experience of uh, being a young man uh, in the early and mid-90s was one of being like, why don't the girls like me the way they like Brad Pitt? And then, like, so imagine my fucking fury when I have to acknowledge that he's not just a Legends of the Fall pretty face and can actually act his motherfucking ass off. <laughs> that was my other first impression of this movie. Being like, God damn it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you're trying to have Foucault and Christ at the same time, except now it's like you're a beautiful Brad Pitt and also you're really talented. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little bit of an uncomfortable balancing act because, you know, on the one hand, you're like, is this mocking mental illness? Is this, you know, you know, is he in on the joke? And at some point, he's just got so much charisma and so much, um, 
uh, vitality in his performance yes. that you almost just forget about it and you just can't stop watching it. Yeah. You know, he's just, it's just a riveting performance. Just these, you know, and it's, it's, it feels more than just like a collection of, you know, actorly ticks or gestures that, you know, he's, he's really found a way inside this, this person's, uh, uh, uh mind mm-hmm. and, and self, um, and you you forget about the pretty boy qualities. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like he's still exactly as handsome as he is in every other movie, but like that has nothing to do with his character. Unlike most of his other roles up to that point, I feel like it's really totally. it's really it's um, quite incredible. That character in general is quite incredible. Brad Pitt does a great job with it, but like to be like his whole position I, again we're living in this world in which like a laboratory scientist is also a celebrity who like is, spends time at black tie dinners and his his father's <laughs> going to be very mad i'm like he's not a billionaire man he's he works in a lab <laughs> he's a virologist <laughs> anyway uh but like Brad Pitt's character straddles the line between you know like the the kinds of sort of extra allowances or affordances that are offered to someone who would come from wealth and property with a name like that person's eccentric not mm-hmm. institutionalizable you know so like and 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 so it's never clear either when he's in the institution or when he's not in the institution which side of that line he whatever quote unquote really is on that's mm-hmm. I, that's that's uh, a testament to the the power of that character, and it's also a testament to Pitt's performance. Yeah, and just a quick shout out to the Foley editor, um, because I I don't know if this jumped out at you, but they did an amazing job of connecting uh, Pitt's motions, uh, not only with like you know the aleatory sound in the uh, institution of the uh, cartoon that was playing on the TV. Um, you know, but also later, like at the dinner party, yes. you know, whenever he moves, it's like you hear something breaking yeah. or you yeah. hear some other noise. It's he's he's got his own. His character has its own um, uh, you know, cartoon sound effect yes, soundtrack. That's right. It's really funny. It is. It is. It's really funny. I mean, it's, you know, it. Um, yeah, I. I that 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 was this was definitely the movie that that uh, kind of opened my eyes to to Brad Pitt as as more than just a pretty face, hundred percent. Yeah, um, you know, and and at the same time, you know, this was, uh, I don't think at the at the time I appreciated, you know, how much Bruce Willis gave to yes, his role. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, as being you know, you know, in, inhabiting this this man who is basically a blunt instrument mm-hmm. uh you know <laughs> sent you know it's all the scientists had was uh, all they saw was nails so yeah, they sent yeah, a hammer exactly, right. you know he's, he's just this sort of um you know he, he kind of stumbles through uh through his circumstances but he's also got this cunning and then the, you know the scenes when he's you know uncomfortably uh, abducted uh madeline yeah, Sow's right. character um you know, just the the scent, just watching his face listen to music mm-hmm. is yeah. just, you know, it's just delightful. Um, just a pause you know, real quickly to appreciate Bruce Willis in general, given the, the stuff that he is going through uh, at this point. I like 
Bruce Willis was cool in Die Hard. I wasn't old enough. We weren't old enough, maybe, for Moonlighting, whatever made Never his sort of it. earlier career. So, like, it, it was sort of like mid 80s to late 90s uh, Bruce Willis that sort of like established him as an actor for me. But I was never paying attention to how good he is in a lot of those roles, including 12 Monkeys. But like Pulp Fiction, it's the same. He always sort of gives like a. Uh, it is as though he continually plays characters who are supposed to be meatheads, but he plays them. He plays them so well. This isn't going to come out quite right. He plays them so well that it's easy to think that he's some kind of meathead. But like mm-hmm. until you start sort of start to appreciate how well he is playing uh, these characters. This is true of his work in The Fifth Element. It's obviously true of Pulp Fiction. There's like, he's done a a few roles sort of recently. God, is the movie Nine Blocks or whatever? An incredible movie, also featuring the actor who is the eco-terrorist in 12 Monkeys as his like erstwhile like sort of best friend on the force. The plot of that movie is basically he's like, he's like a fat kind of washed up mustachioed New York cop who has to basically get uh, a witness nine blocks whatever from wherever he is to the courthouse so he can testify turns out that the guy's going to testify against bruce willis's buddy and there's many moments in which uh his buddies are essentially like just get out of the way and let us like kill this witness and we'll be good and uh bruce willis ultimately like you know saves the day gets him to where he's going and then it also turns out that bruce willis knows that he's that he is involved in the criminal racket that like the anyway it's just it's a classic sort of like down on his luck whatever role that wouldn't have worked with anybody else so props to bruce willis yeah um surprising for me to learn that christopher maloney is in this movie yes just for a scene it's It's i know that guy exactly i'm like oh my god he's so skinny and this is like comedy era christopher maloney this is like maybe somebody at law and order was like you know what that guy could do like you know why not um no shots of his glorious ass unfortunately <laughs> exactly. but, but you know he, he really uh you know is just like yeah he's he did a great job um uh kind of bringing it to his character christopher Plummer, um you know who's uh who did he die last year or earlier this year i can't remember. i think it was last year Time has become weird in the pandemic. <laughs> I God, it's got big. You know, I I feel like we are we are just about to. Uh, I think the wave of uh, of PhD dissertations subtitled "Time in the Pandemic" is about to break upon us. Let me tell like you, a my tsunami. friend. Um, <laughs> if if the articles that are already out in journals are like any indication, you are correct. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, and, and maybe that's maybe that's one of the reasons that I see like the structure of the movie is sort of, you know, hopeful or kind of resisting despair is that it's it posits this pandemic time quality as having some kind of structure. Whereas, you know, my experience of time during the pandemic has been it's like, you know, this sort of chronological soup where yeah, I can't right. remember what happened when or, you know, what you know, what happened the last two and a half years. It's just you know, I, I feel like it's, you know, and I don't know if that's a quality of you know, the the shared experience of it or the shared lack of experience or, you know, I don't know exactly why it is, but t- 
time has gotten so weird over the last couple of years. There is so there's really something to this, and I'm going to like float a couple of things that might just be might be nothing. But like, I, I've had exactly that same experience of time being like a soup. Uh, I was like, when I'm thinking about this movie and the way that it avoids the soup time problem, or the way that James Cole's character uh, mm-hmm. avoids the soup time problem it it has to do with a certain drive it's not narrative it's just that he has a job to do he has an understanding of the state of the world as it actually is in which he's living in this post-pandemic experience and he understands that he's got a small role to play in sort of making things better and he's and he has to sort of meet these objectives so despite the fact that he's constantly jumping around uh between like world war one france and uh, and 2035 or whatever it is and prison and mental institutions and whatever, like this is sort of a guiding sense of purpose that keeps not only us as sort of his uh, audience surrogates, his protagonist surrogates, moving through the movie narratively, but also keeps him from experiencing any of this sort of soup time. I'm thinking like the when you were describing like soup time, this sort of shared absence of experience, I was thinking about, uh, you know, a certain kind of like European philosophical experience directly in the aftermath of World War One, in which people like Heidegger were thinking about the structure of time and uh, mm. intentionality and whatever, and like arrived at, I, and then I started thinking about like the relationship of sort of world historical disasters to uh, the experience of time in general and whatever. So now I'm losing this like thread of how these things come <laughs> together. But like interesting is all I want to say. We have like <laughs> our own sort of personal lived experience in which I think it's in the question concerning technology. Heidegger talks about how like what what the absence of intentionality is like, like what it is like when uh, the world goes dead, when everything sort of become like the mm. life itself loses topography and so one has no way to orient oneself in the world that, and I like, I, that rings a bell. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> that was purely theoretical for me when I read it the first time. And then something like the experience of the pandemic, you know? So like, and now coming back to 12 monkeys, you think about like James Cole's character, having something to do turns out to be really important to one's experience of life as life, as opposed to mm-hmm. time soup. You know, and I think one other, you know, as, as a director, one other thing that Gilliam does to, um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily always in service of a sense of purposefulness, but his dedication to returning to humor and returning to uh, absurdism, um, you know, it doesn't feel nihilistic. It doesn't feel like, you know, this, I mean, the scene where, um, you know, it's a static shot of a, of a you know a Hudson Valley school uh, landscape painting, and then all of a sudden, the heads of these scientist characters sort of oh suddenly emerge from God. the bottom of the frame, <laughs> singing "Blueberry Hill" doo-wop style. That <laughs> is the most amazing scene in the entire movie. It's fantastic. We heard you liked music. It's like it's like it does not you know. It's like you could say that this detracts from, um, you know, 
you know, but like what it is, it's, it's like a raisin in the oatmeal, you know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, and I think that that's, you know, that's true of my experience with, uh, you know, with life is that, you know, there are these sort of long kind of, uh, undifferentiated periods, but then, you know, there are these, um, you know, moments of, of concrescence of, mm-hmm. of like where things come together with a, a sense of, um, you know, playfulness or purpose or, you know, something that, that kind of helps you feel connected to a, a larger force or a larger, you know, life energy. Um, I'm really scraping the, you know, I'm digging back to, you know, Alfred North Whitehead oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, process, uh, some, some process theology here, but, um, but, you know, that there's, um, you know, another moment is, you know, one of my all time favorite movie lines is after, um, uh, after the, after they get attacked by this, uh, pimp and, you know, in this flea bag hotel and, uh, you know, Willis beats the shit out of him. And, um, <clears throat> when the cops arrive and, you know, and the, this pimp character is putting himself to, back together in the, in the bathroom, he says, I'm the innocent bystander here. I got attacked by a coked up bar and a fucking crazy dentist. <laughs> <laughs> because well, Willis like, is like pulling his own teeth out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a you perfect know. example of that sort of absurdist. Oh, it's not absurdist humor, really. Like that's uh, it's a character in a movie trying to make sense of his situation. Like, yeah. But like, it is a moment of very necessary levity <laughs> amid what is otherwise potentially it's potentially really crushing. Like this movie is basically like. like Camus, if Camus could lighten the fuck up every now and then, is basically what it is. <laughs> One must imagine Sisyphus occasionally not giving a shit. <laughs> take a, yeah, you know, take five Sisyphus, exactly. have, a, have a cigarette. <laughs> but yes, I like, I fully agree. I, the scene, the scene that you mentioned earlier with the scientists sort of a rising up out of the bottom of the frame singing Blueberry Hill, uh, as he's looking at <laughs> at the painting that's on the ceiling, as he, I think, is strapped to a gurney still, the idea, like, oh, yeah. the best part of that joke is that this is a reward <laughs> for something. <It's> like, <laughs> congratulations. You get to listen to us in our, like, reflective glasses singing uh-huh. Blueberry Hill to you. Like, a surprise, you're back in hell. Yeah, and then they present him with a pardon, which is just like a badly Xeroxed piece of paper with things crossed hey, out man. in like a moldering old uh, clear plastic slip cover. Of, you know, it's just this. Oh, Only the mimeograph this. machines, you know, survive the apocalypse. The cockroaches of technology. <laughs> Good Lord. Um, you know, but it's, you know, and I guess that's, uh, you know, in the, one of their stylistic thing that I, I, I do love about Gilliam or that, or find really compelling is that he finds these um, uh, these intersections of uh, sort of organic and mechanical. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's really interested in mm-hmm. those. Um, classic example is in Brazil where, you know, these uh, heating tubes sort of slowly uh, uh, infiltrate the main character's apartment building over the course of the movie mm-hmm you know, like loops of intestine and viscera mm-hmm. that just sort of, you know, occasionally spew liquids or steam and they just, you know, kind of expand and grow, um, you know, and, and there's, you know, and there's aspects, I think, it, you know, it has to do with how much he seems to just love um, things that are visually tactile. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's just all these, um, 
you know, he kept coming back to, uh, you know, this sort of glorious decay uh, mm-hmm. in, in his, in the visual, uh, you know, and in the sets of the movie and the props. And, Which is um, a constant across his movies in general. The sense that, like, yeah. not only do things grow, but things fall away. Mm-hmm. Decadence. He really believes in entropy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And yet, also meticulous structure, which is mm-hmm. amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Andy. It's so much fun to talk with you about movies. Oh, totally. Really looking forward to next time, which will be in early January. Yes. And hey, one one last question. Yes. Um, rewatching this, did you like it? God, that's a great question. God damn it. So like such a great <laughs> question to end on. Did I like it? You know, you know what? I don't think that I did. I think that like I loved this movie when I saw it when I was 16. And now and now I just found like it, it, it's, it's an almost impossible question for me to answer because I'm like, it's like I'm walking through, I'm walking on a trail that I know very well and it feels very familiar and lived in. I'm waiting for the beats so that I can appreciate the beats. Mm. But I don't think, oh man, I, I guess like the, the third act of the movie is so solid though. I will say that like it takes a while to get going mm-hmm. and I sort of and I like notice all the little discrepancies and like nitpicky things early on but then like the momentum really picks up and it's yeah. hard, it's hard though cuz you know there is this you know f- for whatever reason for this movie in particular you know it's that experience of um, there's such a parallel with the, the little boy, the, the yeah. little boy self having the dream, watching the events mm-hmm. play out. And, yeah. you know, it's like I, I mean, I'm re-experiencing the dream yeah. of what the movie had been as I'm watching it uh, unspool before my mm-hmm. eyes. Only at this point, I can see a lot more of the, you know, the marionette wires yeah, yeah, that totally. are kind of, you know, just hanging above the screen that I, I couldn't see as much of uh when I was younger, but for me, literally, and now, like, I, I appreciate you bringing this like to my attention. Like, that was my experience of watching the movie right up until the time that Madeline Stowe's character leaves the message on the answering machine that the scientists get, and so she's like, mm-hmm. she's like, oh, I, I, I said something hilarious. It was, it's the wrong number. You are crazy or whatever. The world's not going to end. And then he just repeats the message to her verbatim. From that point to the end of the movie, like, I was just in it. I was not like looking for marionette wires anymore and like yeah. they didn't appear to me. Everything from that point just goes, which was which was cool. So you know, glass half empty, glass half full kind of thing, maybe for me. <laughs> what what about for you? Was it was it mostly marionette wires? Um and I, you know, kind of and I I will own up to the I, I love I love that. I'm a real sucker for that kind of shit. Um and the fact that this movie um, worked pretty hard to resist despair, yeah, mm-hmm. um, was was really significant to me. One uh, one of the kind of um, one of the sort of round, smooth stones that I carry in my pocket uh, was uh, something that a minister said at the graduation dinner when I graduated from seminary. This was someone who worked as um, 
an organizer and a, a community organizer and was um, responsible for lobbying uh, the state government of the state of California. Um, <clears throat> and I, which, you know, I got the impression had been, you know, quite a, you know, occasionally thankless job uh, with paying very little and requiring a ton of shit work. But she said uh, that one of the tasks of living is that uh, that we need to resist the arrogance of despair. You know, and, and she said, it's despair is an act of arrogance because it presumes that we can know the outcomes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Des- despair presumes that we can just give up because we know how it's going to end. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's the same thing that, uh, that Gandalf says to Pippin, mm-hmm. you know, not even the very wise can see all ends. Yeah. And, and I've really, that's, that's been a, a just a, a piece of hope that I've, that I've hung on to even in, you know, parts of my life that have been dark and challenging is remembering that, you know, that, there's an arrogance to despair that is uh, seductive and uh, profoundly evil and must be resisted. And the other thing that I will say for this movie that I deeply appreciate along similar lines to that is that uh, there's plenty of sort of pop culture or narratives or stories or whatever in which resisting despair is sort of the main point of the movie but like it's framed and now I'm thinking of something like the road or like the walking dead as like you know the person who like the duty is to resist despair and one must approach this you know thankless task with great visually you know compelling stoicism and that's not what this movie gives us either that that mm-hmm. is the gift of the humor in this movie as well the sort of like the interpositions of the absurd like we're yeah, the world is fucked. It's not clear that we're going to be able to unfuck it. We're not going to give up, but we're also not going to grit our teeth and just like, <laughs> you know, very showily muscle through whatever we have to do. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, now for real, thank you for uh, <laughs> being here on this episode. Uh, it's it, oh, totally. Thank you. Derek. It is so great to talk to you about movies. We'll be back in January, the two of us and Winston in all likelihood. And that puts a little bow on this episode. As always, you can subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Always remember to leave a review to make it easier for other people to find us, too. And we're always open to your more direct feedback as well, either at point10pod at gmail.com or on Mastodon at point10pod at home.social. We're really looking forward to the last couple of episodes to round out season one, so stay tuned for those. The music you hear on the show is Hella Funk by Mr. Smith. For Andy Carlson and the rest of the Point 10 podcast, I'm Derek Gottlieb. We will see you next time. Thank you.